join me. We're in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, if you weren't with us this morning, we're talking from the text, basically verses 15 down to verse 23, and looking at that paragraph as we're going to Colossians. While you're turning there and going with me to that, let me pose a thought to you. Let me give you an idea. There's a passage in the Old Testament that says this, and it's part of the commands that are given. It says, six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever does any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. May I ask you, just in an honest, candid sense, doesn't that strike you as harsh initially? Yes? Does it seem like that's pretty, pretty strict on God's part that if you work at all on the Sabbath day, you die? Okay, now again, I'm not questioning God. I'm just saying our, my initial reaction when I read that, ooh, that's tough. Why is it so tough? Why is he so serious? What does that tell us? I think it goes back to this morning's message. The idea that God wants to be preeminent in people's lives. That idea that he is serious about this idea, that this is my day. This is the day that I've set aside in that Old Testament concept of Sabbath. You don't fool with it. And if you fool with it in some way, some shape, if you excuse it, it is the penalty of capital punishment. God wants to be preeminent. Just one example of it. Jesus, when he was preaching, brings that fact up. This is Jesus talking. We looked at the passage where he is preaching. He has done the healing, and then he does the preaching on, the, on one of those Sabbath days. And when he's doing it, he makes this comment as he's there in the temple after the crowds are a little bit dispersing. He makes this comment, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him. If we were to sit here and just say, okay, what's that verse say without being redundant or silly? Obviously, there's just some very, very apparent truth that just smacks you in the face face as soon as you give it any kind of thought. One of those apparent truths is this. The Father wants Jesus to be honored. That's a fact. Fact two, he wants him to be honored equal footing with the Father. That's a fact by this statement. Fact here, this is to be done by all men, that Jesus is to be honored as the Father is honored. Another fact that stands out, failure to honor Christ in the same way that you honor the Father, is an insult to the Father. The Father isn't jealous of the Son's honor. He, he demands that we honor the Son. Christ is to be given preeminence. And if we don't give him preeminence, what are we saying to God the Father? We are saying we don't care about you as well. And so we look at these passages as just our setting, and we think, wait a minute, when it comes to us as Americans... We're, we're truly, we honor Christ. Just to give you a, a projection, 2020, Christmas time. It is expected that we will spend a trillion dollars on Christmas gifts or just under $1,000 on average for Americans. Now, that's a big clump of everybody. And, but just, you know, and, I'm, and I think it's exaggerated to some degree. But here's the fact. It's not our birthday and we're spending a lot of money on us. You know, it's just a sample of, an illustration of where we are as a culture. That we give Christ some prominence on the Lord's day, but usually we're giving preeminence to other things, other people, even ourselves, and our own whims and wishes. And we come to the book of Colossians, and in the book of Colossians, the theme of the passage, the theme of the book is verse 18. 
It sets the whole course of the entire book and even gets into how this should show in your family life, between you and your spouse, you and your workplace, your parents and kids and kids and parents. We'll get into that as we get further into the book. Your music. He'll get into all those areas, having him be preeminent. But that's the key thought. He is to be magnified. He is to be exalted. And so we thought had this thought this morning. He is to be preeminent according to verse 1, verse 18 as you look at it. And we remind you that just if you're joining us for the first time, if you're just here this evening and didn't get to this morning's message yet, here's what he says in that verse, that he might have, he might become permanently giving the place of preeminence that is the highest position, the highest honor, the the greatest of all time in your life, that he gets the throne, he gets the driver's seat. That's what he's talking about. And in this paragraph, he gives two reasons. We looked at the first reason this morning, because he's supreme. He is above all others. He's the redeemer. He's the revealer. He's the creator. He's the maintainer. He's the head. He is divine God in the flesh. That was the idea of supreme. This evening, let's do the second part. The second part that's mixed in there and then the end of all the way through verse 23 is that he should be given preeminence not only because he's supreme, but secondly, he's sufficient. Because of his ability, because what he can do for us, he can, do, he can meet all of our needs. And he highlights those needs by looking at a couple of them. A couple of them in this text are really predominant that basically cover all of our needs. He says that Jesus is sufficient to be able to meet our need in the sense of dealing with our greatest problems, diseases that lead to death. That's where he makes that comment where we catch in the middle of the passage. Let's, let's get verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. There he is, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He is the one to be able to deal with man's greatest dilemma. What about death? How do we handle it? How do we handle all the disease that leads up to it? How do we handle death itself? What does it mean to us? Is it the end of our lives? What about after death? All of that is going to be in this phrase that he says he is to have then preeminence because what he can do. In, uh, in dissecting the verse, let's look at the wording, okay? And again, we're not doing this to say, hey, look at me, I know Greek. I don't mean to do that. But in this paragraph, you have to understand the words that he is using because he's just throwing out phrase after phrase after phrase that in the original tongue makes so much more sense than just in our English. He says he is the arche. He is the beginning. Again, some will right away point out and they'll say, oh, that means he is you know, the first one. That means he has a beginning. True. There are verses, there are times RK comes and be used to be used as that idea that he is the first in time, that there is a beginning, or he's first place, the first one you know, in the race. But, okay, if you say that that means that he has a beginning, then you have to say he has an end as well. Do you remember what Revelation says three times? He is the beginning and he is... The end. So if you're taking beginning, RK, to mean that he has a starting point, then you have to be consistent in the rest of that phrase that if he has a starting point, he has a ending point. And none of the cultists will do that. They'll only take and say, oh, he has a beginning, he was created, but then he keeps on going eternally. So then it can't mean beginning with the idea of a sense of a, a, a beginning, a, a moment of creation. Otherwise, it has to mean a moment of end, a moment of non-life after, after a certain spot. So beginning has to have a different idea than he was a start. 
It has to have the idea where, like we find in other passages, in other verses, where RK is used, the beginning, it's an idea of he has the authority over. He is the chiefest. Okay, so beginning means that, that idea of position, of prominence once again. Or it can be used in Hebrews where he is the author, the beginning of our creation, the captain of our faith. He is the one who has the authority. He leads in that regards. So it doesn't always mean beginning as in the sense of time. It could be the idea of preeminence, prominence. And if we look at the phrase within its context, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, you're putting it together, it makes a whole lot more sense to say beginning means he is the one who has authority over, he is the one who is leading out of the firstborn of the dead. And so we're looking at it, we're going to be talking here as we go a little bit further about that phrase, firstborn of the dead, from the dead. So he makes that comment, he says he is the beginning, the one with authority over death, the firstborn, which go together. And here's the question that you've got to come up with, that some will right away say, wait, wait a minute. How is Jesus the firstborn from the dead? Had there been other individuals who came back from the dead prior to Jesus coming back from the dead? Were there, were there situations like that? Oh yeah, we know of some. We know of some that happened in Jesus' ministry. Remember the, the different people? Who came back from the dead? Lazarus? Okay, Jairus' daughter? The widow of Nain's son. Remember, he, he right off the funeral uh, buyer as they were walking through. So we know of three cases, and we know that it says even the disciples raised some from the dead. So how is it that he is the firstborn from the dead if other people had come back from the dead already? They died. Okay, when we talk about those people, theirs was a resuscitation. Theirs was not brought back to life. If theirs was like Christ, if they had been brought back from the dead the way Christ had been brought back from the dead, then they should be alive and well on planet Earth today. Unless they were like Christ, resurrected. We know that didn't happen. Those people came back to life for a temporary situation and time of their life. But Jesus is unique because his was an eternal firstborn from the dead. He is the very first one that came from the grave forever and ever for good. And so when we talk about, okay, then that means that, that the beginning, the firstborn, putting them together, he's the ruler over death now. Now think what that, what that applies as we go through other scriptures. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about Satan. And it makes this comment that Jesus defeated him that, and he makes, it makes, that had Satan who had the power over death. Do you understand what he's talking about? Satan wanted to keep us dead. Keep us in that state that when people died, they stayed in the realm of death forever and ever and ever, never to have a resurrected body with reunion with God. To never have that experience of that revived kingdom, that Garden of Eden aspect. But Jesus defeated him. Jesus got the power, the authority, the leadership, so that Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, was not only the one to come out of the grave, but also now he holds the keys of death and life and being able to do what? What John chapter 5 says. Jesus says that the hour is coming in which all the grave shall hear his voice 
and it shall come forth they that have done under the resurrection of life, the, they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. It's Jesus that has the power over resurrection. It's Jesus that has the power over death and life. Satan who thought he had that ability to keep people there forever, he doesn't. Jesus Christ has that authority. That's what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about Jesus has broken the gravitational pull of death. That he won't be able, nobody will be able to keep people down. It's because of what Christ has done. And so when we think about that, if Jesus has that power, and somebody was suggesting to me, one of our ladies here this week, they said, hey, you know, they were thinking about end times. And I don't know about you, but this whole situation has got me thinking about end times, yes? Don't you think more and more, he's got to come back any moment. You watch the news, and you, besides getting to a point you want to gag, don't you think it can't get any worse? than what it is. Okay, so thinking about projecting into end times for a second. We know that in the end times, there is going to be that one world ruler. He'll get authority. We often wondered how in the world is he going to convince everybody to have that authority? Hey, do you think it's possible that this one who comes in with the power of Satan that has those signs and lying wonders, the one who does miracles, the one who even he is, comes back temporarily from the dead, that he might claim he is the answer to life and death? Do you think that people in this world would gravitate towards somebody who all of a sudden said, I have the answer to COVID-19? Would that all of a sudden get people's attention? In this pandemic, do you think when, when there's multiple pandemics, as Revelation talks about in chapter 5, where it talks about the different diseases that are going to afflict and a third of the world population dies within that first three and a half years, don't you think that somebody who would say, I have the power to overcome disease, would get good press and popularity, and people would sell their souls to that type of a guy? I think we're learning that culture in the world, they're going to gravitate towards somebody who makes claims and even can in some way say, hey, I've got power and even could use on a temporary basis, mimic the work of God to be able to heal people. That would catch people's attention in the culture and the climate of what we're living in in the future when it's even you know, exponentially much worse. So we look and say, okay, we know that, that certain people are going to make claims but Jesus, Jesus had the power. And he's the one that still has the power. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn, which implies there's more to follow. There's others who are going to come from the grave. And we know that's us. And then after us, there's going to be others. You know, and then eventually all the unsaved will come back from the grave. And if Jesus has that power over life and death, which is the point of this passage. If Jesus has that power, well, we also know he had power to deal with other sin-caused problems, diseases that are afflicting people. If Jesus has power over life and death, shouldn't he be exalted? Shouldn't Jesus be magnified? Now, you're sitting in the church of Colossae. You've got preachers that are coming along, and they are saying things like this. If you listen to me, if you let me give you what, what truths and abilities and powers that my spirit guide is giving me, if you listen, then you're going to be able to overcome disease and death. And maybe my spirit guide will help you to come back to life later on. And Paul's writing and saying, no, 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 no. It's all about Jesus. And we still have people today 
We have people that claim that miracles are happening in the name of some other creature or being. We have some who claim that they will bring their followers back from the dead. We can put up Koresh, we can put up other peoples and names that have happened even in America. But the fact of the matter is, as Paul points out, who is the only one that has the ability, that has the power to handle our greatest problem of death? It's Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. He is the arche. He is the firstborn. Then he adds to, he says, okay, he is, he is this powerful. He deserves your preeminence. And after he makes that comment, then he goes on and says, here's something else he has done. And while having made peace through the blood of the cross, by him you reconciled all things unto himself. And he talks about how he is restoring peace between you and God. And the rest of the paragraph, I should read the whole paragraph, then we'll dissect it. Let's start with verse 20 again. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime, or in the past, alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body or through the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature, especially by me. And he goes on and talks about it. Let, let's take this and let's talk about what he's ta- what's in this verse. Okay? The predominant action in this verse is the idea of to reconcile. That's the predominant phrase that we're looking at. By him, all things are reconciled. In that, he says all things. He's talking creation would be redeemed and the sin curse would be removed. Mankind would be redeemed. The sin curse would be removed. It's all having to do with when he does this resurrection and renewal of everything that he's mentioned. Okay, He is the one who is reconciling. It's done by him. Very emphatic. By him. It's not an angel being. It's not a people. It's not a preacher. Jesus is the one who reconciles. He goes on. He says, to himself. That is, he's reconciling. And by the way, in Scripture, there is reconciliation between you and me. Okay, there is Matthew 5, that we need to be reconciled with one another. We know that there's, at times, this level of reconciliation. You've experienced that. If you've been married for a minute, you know that there's moments that there needs to be reconciliation. If you've grown up in a family with siblings, you know that there's moments of reconciliation. And so sometimes it's used this way. But we're talking in this text this way. Reconciliation between man and God. And in this verse, he's saying that this is the, the goal. This is what Christ did. To reconcile us to himself. Which means, very importantly, that, that God, there's, there's something that God, caused God to do this with us. Okay? To have this distancing. Okay, and it wasn't God's fault, but this is where God is at. And so he is doing something to bring men back to himself, and it is done by the blood. It is not done by baptism. It is not done by going to church. It is not done by being a member of a church. Very clearly, the message of the gospel is the shed blood of Jesus Christ and then his resurrection by his sacrifice, his death. Oh, no, that's there. And so all that's in the verse. The key thought that we need to understand is what does it mean to reconcile? The word literally means to change completely. There's something that has to be changed completely. And the words that he uses here in the combination of, of, some, uh, uh, of reconcile with, with you know, uh, another, an, another word gives the impression of complete 
reconciliation or removal or change. That there's a change of thought. There's a change of relationship. Something that Christ has done to change the, the situation. And we understand what it has. It ultimately has the idea of remove all barriers. Remove all problems. Uh, okay, if we bring it back to say, okay, let's illustrate it on this level. You have had a problem with a coworker. You've had a problem with a relative. You had a problem with a sibling. To reconcile means that you're going to remove that problem. It could be something with at work with something that was said, something that was done. It could be some criticism they made. It could be some oversight. But you say we're going to reconcile. We've got to remove that problem. We, we can't let this issue, we can't let this offense sit here and bother us. And if we let it sit and bother, it moves into bitterness and division and separation. And in some places, divorce. Some places never, ever have contact with family. Reconciliation removed the problem. Remove the offense. Remove the barrier. And so in the same way in the spiritual realm, there's got to be a removal of the problem, the barrier, the issue. And he says God is, in this verse, removing the problem, the barrier, so that there can be a relationship with him. And it's done, the removal is done by Jesus Christ because he has the power to do so because of his death, his shed blood on the cross. To get the full sense of what it means in this text, which all of you know, if you're born again, you who are at home, you've experienced it, but let it be doctrinally explained and emphasized by going through the rest of this study. By looking at how he describes us in phases, in the past, in the present, and in the future. As you go through the rest of the verse, watch what he's done. He describes our condition. This will all emphasize the change, the reconciliation. He describes what we were in the past. You, plural, each and every one of us. The Colossians as well as us. And he's trying to get them to understand the the supremacy of Christ. That what he did for you in the past, you were alienated and you were enemies. And so he defines it, okay? You were foreigners. You were strangers spiritually. You were estranged. You were cut off from God. You were speaking a different language. You were like somebody that was from outer space. In that sense, and they didn't have outer space at that time, but you and I would understand that, that, that it could be somebody so foreign, so, such a, an alien to God. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, not only were you alienated and estranged, but you were actually actively opposed to God. This is your description. This is what God thinks about you and I. You have offended me so much that you are just on a different plane. And then on top of that, you have done things to me as if you were my enemy. You have treated me in a way. And then he talks about our treatment. Look at, look at where he says that it is. You were alienated. You were enemies. Where? In your mind. Our thoughts are so contrary to God. Some of the, and we understand that. We, we look in the mirror real quickly and we say, oh yeah, in my life sometimes there are thoughts that I want nobody to know about. There are some, some ideas, some words, some, some suggestions, some desires that were really, really offensive to people in the culture and surely they were offensive to a holy, mighty God. But he doesn't stop there. Look what he says in describing you and me. We were alienated, we were enemies in our minds, but not only that, what's the next phrase? He says, even by your wicked works. The idea is what deeds we did, that we acted upon some of those thoughts, some of us more so than others, 
Some of us worse than others, but the fact is we were alienated from God. We acted as enemies of God in what we thought and then what we carried out. Now, maybe some of us didn't carry out as deeply as others, you know, some of those thoughts, but we still offended God. And we put this huge barrier between us. Now, for those of you here at home that say, you know, sometimes I think it wasn't fair of God to say that I'm damned because of the choices by Adam and Eve. This text just eliminates you ever, ever thinking that again. By your wicked thoughts, by your wicked deeds, you alienated yourself. Yes, were we sinners, and yes, were we alienated from birth? True. But we are responsible even before God for what we chose to think, to entertain in our minds, and to act upon. And by that virtue of that, we have made sure that this wall that's between us and God has gotten even bigger and greater. And so he's talking to these people. And some of you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I don't know if I'm really that bad. Well, let's rephrase and illustrate what we're talking about. God on one side, us on this other side of this wall, this division. This is you and me. We're separated. God is offended. And it's like, whoa, I can't allow such evil in my presence. And you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds kind of harsh. That sounds kind of unkind. And if I share that with somebody, they're going to say I'm rude. We don't mean to be rude. We don't mean to be unkind. If you're watching this, we're we're not saying and picking on you alone. We're saying this describes us. And quite frankly, this isn't our words. This is whose word? This is God. This is God describing us, describing you and me. And you might say, well, I'm offended by it. You might be like this gal. The gal that we're talking about here is Lady Huntington, who is a believer and we've shared just in COVID time, I shared a story of how she was supportive of some of the ministry of Whitfield and others. And she was of noble class. And so she was outside of the realm of nobility who considered themselves much better than most people. She took a friend of hers, the Duchess of Buckingham, with her to one of Whitfield's meetings. And there he preached the gospel, that we're sinners, we need to be saved by grace. That woman wrote this note back to Lady Lady Huntington. She was highly offended by what she heard, that we are sinners and need to be saved by grace. It is, I quote, It is a monstrous thing to behold you have a heart as sinful as common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments at variance with your high ranking and good standing. This is, this is beneath you to even say that you are a sinner. Well, it may be beneath the rank in social standings, but friend, this is what God says about us. This is, this is where we're at. So what we are is in the past, we're alienated from Jesus Christ, from God. In the present, this verse says we're liberated. We're liberated. How how do we do that? How does it come to it? He emphasizes now. In the past, this was what you were. But now is the idea. Now he has reconciled. He has restored. He has removed. He has changed the situation completely. Something has totally reversed. And that idea is that he has reconciled him, him, uh, us to himself. In other words, God has removed the barrier. Now watch the thought here. God did this. Jesus did this for us. The thought here, this is something we couldn't do ourselves. When I was a kid, 
teenager. This was our normal summer chore. Go to grandpa's place and pick rocks. My grandpa was a great farmer. His land kept on growing rocks. We would go there, we'd pick the rocks, and then they would show up again. But they had to pick them because otherwise it would cause damage to the machine. And so we had to remove the rocks. And I hated it, and it was hard work, and it was something that just seemed to be ridiculous, but it was so important to get there, get the stone, the barrier, out of the field. Okay, so here we got it. We've got a barrier. We've got stones in our life of, of not just a field, but a wall of rocks between us and God. For us to try to remove it would be like taking a plastic hammer and beating against a concrete wall. It's not going to work. We can smile. We can say, I'm trying. I'm going to church. I'm being good. But this passage says that barrier is we cannot tear it down. This wall of partition that is between different classes and between God and us, it's the blood of Christ and Christ alone. He is the only one that could tear down this barrier. This barrier separated us from him. And he said, okay, I want to remove it. And I'm going to make the sacrifice. And when I made the sacrifice, I broke down this wall of division between us and God. The veil was was, was, uh, uh, all of a sudden rent in twain. And not only, not only did he break down the wall, but he changed it completely. He removed it totally. All residue of the separation is gone. Why? The blood of Jesus Christ. Now, understand what he's doing. He's talking to a church that is filled with people, not like you, but a group of people who, like you, are believers, but are getting confused. That are saying, well, do we need to do baptism, circumcision, eat certain foods? Do we need to add something to it? And he's saying, no. Jesus did the work. He broke down the wall. He removed it. He reconciled. He changed it completely. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can do further. It's good that you go to church, but you're going to church doesn't make it any better. Jesus is the reason that we get saved. Very strong, very emphatic. He is sufficient. He's it. He's all. And so in this text, we have the idea that that peace, that restoration, that time of fellowship, while through his blood, we have the peace that comes through his blood. That's it. It's not through us going to church. It's not through us following his commands, even though we should do that. Our salvation is wrapped up in Jesus and his work alone. He alone is sufficient. It was his death. There's a story that comes out in the Midwest and a verification of the people, I can't get you that. But the story is repeated several times by different preachers who talk about this couple that was living in a town in the Midwest and they lost one of their children. Their only child, excuse me. They lost their child. And they had already had some difficulties and some tensions in their marital relationships. The loss of the child just exasperated them to the point that within weeks and months after that, they were so distraught, they couldn't handle even seeing each other. And finally, they ended up saying, we're going we're gonna to split. The man divorced the wife. He left. His business, he moved it and went to another city. About a year or two later, all of a sudden, his business required that he was going to be back in that hometown. He came back to that hometown, and while he was there, he had that urging to go to his son's grave. And there he was at the side of his son's grave, and he was grieving, mourning the death of his son, sobbing. And while he was on his knees sobbing, he heard something, felt something behind him. When he turned, he hadn't noticed that his ex-wife had come up behind him. She didn't know he was there, just happened to be there at the same time, and now the two of them were grieving the loss of their son. 
And as they stood there over the grave of their son, thinking about their loss, that grieving, that focus on their son's death brought them together to the point that even they touched hands. They held hands. And then they embraced one another in comfort. And as time went by, their relationship was restored. The death of their son brought them back together. The death of Jesus Christ has brought us back together with God Almighty. And God has done a wonderful work, a gracious work. And then he goes on, he says, that's what we were in the past. This is what he's done for us in the present. He has restored us, reconciled us to peace with God. And then he says, this is what he's doing in the future. We are exonerated. I have no other word that better describes it. We're exonerated. Watch. He says, God has done this, all of this in the past where we, where we were, but now he has restored us, reconciled us in his sight, so that, verse 22, in the body of his flesh, in order that to present you holy, unblameable, unreprovable in his sight. So he's talking about standing together as a group before God Almighty in his sight. And so he's taking us to the future realm when we will be before the Lord, where we will be standing there literally before the Lord. And he's talking in this text how he'll look at us and say, we're totally separated from sin. We're unblameable, without spot, without blemish. That's how God says, I will see you in the future. That I will look at you and I will say, you are unreprovable beyond reproach. This is God's guarantee to you and me. What he, how he will deal with us. That even when the enemy tries to cast our accusations against us for what we have done, we will be unreprovable. It will not stick. It will not hang there. Why? Because peace has been made by Jesus Christ. That in the future, that we are going to be there in God's presence, and no matter what, we will have an eternal relationship with God Almighty. Why? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. And then you say, yeah, but wait a minute, Pastor. You're saying that they're arguing in that context. They're saying that this peace with God, this, this reconciliation, the Judaizers are saying you've got to do something. Isn't that what the next verse implies? Verse 23, is it? Where it starts off, if you continue. Isn't that implying that there's, it relies upon us? No, it isn't. Not in the original language. And again, I don't mean to say that to belittle any of our understanding or knowledge, but just to give you the emphasis of the text. It doesn't read the idea of, well, as long as if you do something. What it literally reads is this. If you continue, literally means in the original, since you will continue. Since you are going to do this. In other words, by your, your fruits, you will show you have faith. Since this is what's evident in your life already, this is what's there. You are continuing, you will continue in the sense of, as he mentions in verse 23, grounded and settled and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. And he's already mentioned in verse 5, 3 and 5, that these people are showing faith, that these people are showing the love, that they are showing the hope. And he is saying, you have already, you're continuing in this. So, so this isn't anything dependent upon you. This is purely a work that God has done and you are showing that it's real in your life by your faith, your love, your hope that I've already commended you for. And remember, if you deny me, I will deny you. And so some of those false teachers coming in who are denying me and adding to me, they're going to be denied. They will say, have not we done all these good works? And I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never... Okay. 
He's not talking about those. He's talking to the true believers and he's saying, the evidence that this is all real in your life is because you have accepted this. You have believed this. You have this hope that has made a difference in your life. God has worked in your life and God is going to keep you. Because of all that, Jesus is sufficient. You don't need other things. You don't need to do anything else. Do you know where that brings us to as we close? Our future resurrection is an absolute reality. It's not a, well, I wonder what's going to happen. No, it's real. Our, our forgiveness and standing in heaven is a real reality. It is a certainty. It is a guaranteed. As long as God is in heaven, it's guaranteed. And my friend, God's in heaven forever. It's not like a 20-year limit on that window up there. That we just missed it by months. Uh-uh. Jesus will never, his warranty never runs out. We will have nothing ever to fear. We have nothing to add to our salvation. It is all the work of Jesus Christ. He has made it complete to God be the glory. Great things he has done in our lives. That's what he ends up with. Jesus is all we need. Jesus is all we need. He is sufficient. Therefore, what we should be doing is exalting him. Giving him praise. He's supreme. He's sufficient. Therefore, this week in our words, in our worship, in our witness, let's magnify Jesus Christ who deserves to be preeminent in conversation and conduct. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for your grace. Thank you for that work. And even though this is the in-depth theology, it is wonderful to think that you have changed your mind towards us because of the Son that you no longer see us as aliens, as enemies. You see us as beloved sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom. Help us to live up to that title, to that position, to that blessing. We pray in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Thanks for being here.